Oh, what a beautiful morning. All right, there you go. Responsive reading. Don't tell anybody. Let's open our Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 27. Acts chapter 27, our text is in verses 27 through 44. The topic, as the storm drives the ship closer and closer to shore and to destruction, Paul and his companions experience God's amazing providence in saving them and all on board. The title of our message, The Providence-Driven Life. Verse 20, wait a minute. No moaning, you can groan, but no outright moans. Verse 27, now when the 14th night had come as we were driving, or excuse me, driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land. And they took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. And when they had gone a little farther, they took soundings again and found it to be 15 fathoms. Then fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff into the sea under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall off. And as day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, today is the 14th day you have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take nourishment, for this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and also took food themselves. And in all, we were 276 persons on the ship. So when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. When it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach onto which they planned to run the ship if possible. And they let go the anchors and left them in the sea, meanwhile loosing the rudder ropes, and they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for shore. But striking a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground, and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable, but the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves." And the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. And the rest, some on boards and some on parts of the ship. And so it was that they all escaped safely to land. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this dramatic story and I pray that we would see not so much ourselves in it, but ourselves in our own storms, in our own crises, and that we would recognize the possibility of being at peace as the Apostle Paul and his companions were, and the certainty of your protection. And I pray, Lord, that you would reveal all of that to us in the ministry of your Holy Spirit as he takes the word and enriches it to our hearts this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Now, we've come to the wreck portion of the shipwreck. On board the doomed vessel were three who loved the Lord. One of them had been promised by God he would arrive in Rome to preach the gospel. God further promised all 276 passengers they would live through the storm and shipwreck. 
The believers knew that God was at work overruling all of the events to accomplish his will. Each of the three, Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus, could say with assurance, this is from Romans 8, 28, words that Paul had already written some years before, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. The word we use to summarize God working all things together for good to those who love him is the word providence. The word derives from the Latin pro and video, which means foresight or to see ahead. It involves more than God just seeing ahead to what is going to happen. It involves his actively working to ensure that his will be done. Now, we like Romans 8.28, but I don't think we always embrace the scope of it. Romans 8.28 doesn't simply mean all things will work out. It means God is at work in everything, whether it is the forces of nature like the Eurocludon wind or the free will choices of men like the centurion and the sailors, God works everything in his creation together for good to those who love him. Commenting on the doctrine of providence, theologian Millard Erickson wrote this. He said, providence in certain ways is central to the conduct of the Christian life. It means that we are able to live in the assurance that God is present and active in our lives. We are in his care and can therefore face the future confidently, knowing that all things are not happening merely by chance. A correct and complete understanding of providence is immensely practical in your walk with the Lord. To the extent you believe God's providence in all things, you will experience his peace and you will expect his protection. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, since God's providence is at work, you may as well experience his peace. And number two, since God's providence is at work, you may as well expect his protection. Amen? Is it a little dark in here? Seems a little dark in here. Either that or I'm having a stroke. There, that's better. All right, number one, verses 27 through 38. Since God's providence is at work, you may as well experience his peace. No matter how turbulent the storm, one man at least was at peace. It was Paul, and I would include Aristarchus and Luke as well as believers and veteran missionaries. They have the assurance of God's presence and thus his providence. And so we start in verse 27 again. It says, now when the 14th night had come. Stop there for just a moment. Two weeks of turbulent, life-threatening seas must have seemed like an eternity. I know I've been on flights before where 30 minutes of turbulence is about my limit. And then after that, I will do anything. I'll, I'd jump out if I had a parachute, which I know would only make things worse. But, uh, you know, it just, it just freaky. And so two weeks, night and day, they didn't see the sun or the stars, it said, for many days in verse 20. And the only destination in sight was destruction and death. The storm was real, but it makes for a great metaphor of the various trials that we face in our lives. They can seem to last too long with no end in sight. The two-week-long storm is interesting because in literature, you'll occasionally encounter this phrase, the dark fortnight of the soul, fortnight being two weeks. I think it probably comes from this biblical story. 
it, ex- it describes an extended period of physical or emotional suffering, not necessarily two weeks, but just that you feel like you're encased in this time of suffering. You, you really can't see any way out of it, and it just begins to wear on you and wear you down. This is the situation that these men were able to experience God's peace in. And and so it's an encouragement to us that whatever situation we will find ourselves in as children of God, we too can find God's peace that passes all understanding. And so on in verse 27, it says, when the 14th night had come, as we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land. Now, they technically were on a portion of the Mediterranean Sea called at that time the Sea of Adria. Whether they could hear waves breaking on the shore through the howling wind or by some other means, the professional sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land. Now, that was both good and bad. You know, it's one of those, do you want, there's good news and bad news. Which do you want first? Well, the good news was that land is where you want to be. The bad news is that your lack of control over a vessel this large meant they would break apart on the rocks if they didn't know where they were going. Remember last week we told you that this vessel was about the size of a naval destroyer. It's a very large wooden ship. And so they're nearing land, there's a hopefulness to it, but also an increased hopelessness. Lack of control is something that robs you of confidence. Lack of control. When we feel like we're in control or or when we're not even thinking about it, we just feel like everything's kind of going along and it's in control, we have a confidence. But the minute that there's a lack of control, we lose confidence and by that I mean we lose our peace and we get a little bit agitated. And this is precisely why you must come to the understanding that there is always someone in control and that someone is our Heavenly Father. It's when we lose a sense of control or we feel like things are spinning out of control that our peace is robbed and we need to return to the place of understanding that God is working all things together for good. Verse 28, they took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. And when they had gone a little farther, they took soundings again and found it to be 15 fathoms. And then fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. I don't know why, but this scene reminds me of Robert Shaw's character in the movie Jaws, for those of you who have the freedom to either watch movies or watch Jaws. But uh, as he described the rescue of the sailors who survived both the wreck of the USS Indianapolis and then the ongoing shark attacks, he said that it was the waiting at the very end that was the worst for him because he didn't know if he was gonna be rescued on time or eaten by sharks. And so what it does here, and I see that in these sailors, even though hope is within their grasp, it's even the worst time because now I can see the land and if we were just on land, we would be safe. But I don't know if we're going to be able to get there in the midst of this storm. And so even when there's hope, it can breed fear in the storms of life unless you have a sense of God's oversight, unless you're just leaving it to God and and just trusting in Him uh, to do what is best. And so in verse 30, As the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff into the sea under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, uh, excuse me, unless these men stay in the ship, 
you cannot be saved. And then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall off. This is a, a kind of a comedy scene in the midst of the drama. Uh, you know, these guys, they're sneaking up to the front. Oh, we're going to throw some anchors out here. And then they start, you know, lowering the ship uh, and, and uh, the little skiff. And then Paul points it out. And I just see the, some of the Roman soldiers just walking up and pulling their swords and just cutting that thing and then putting their swords back in and walking away. No conversation needed in that situation. Just, you guys, you know, let's be on board here with who has the weapons and who doesn't, you know, kind of a thing. And so what's happening here, though, is crisis reveals character. A few of the sailors decide to try to save themselves and abandon everyone else. Again, doesn't every good crisis movie, every good disaster movie has one guy or a couple of people who are just interested in saving themselves? You remember the doctor on Lost in Space? I mean, you know, that guy was, you know, if you just could just leave that guy on one of these planets, you know? I mean, he's always trying to do some crazy scheme to save himself, and, and it's at dramatic tension. But it, it's true. Crisis reveals character. And so Paul discovered their actions, and he warned the centurion who took swift action. Now, wait a minute. I thought God had promised them they were all going to be saved. But then Paul comes up and he says, if these guys launch this skiff and get off the boat, we're all going to die. Well, God promised they were going to be saved, but now we see that part of them being saved was to remain on the ship. And this highlights one reason we have trouble embracing the fullness of God's providence. He always allows for the free will actions of men. We cannot fully comprehend God's absolute control and our free will. It leads some people to become fatalistic, as if our actions have little or no meaning because after all, everything's been predetermined by God. It doesn't matter what I do, it doesn't matter what I don't do. God's gonna do what he's going to do, so I might as well just sit around. But others conclude just the opposite. If man has free will, then nothing is certain, and God is simply reacting rather than controlling. He has to kind of look ahead and see, well, oh, Gene's going to do this, so I have to block it over here. And it's, it's as if God might lose control at some point. Let me provide just one verse as an example of the working of God's sovereign control and man's free will at the same time in ways that we can't fully comprehend. It has to do with the death of Jesus Christ. It was previous in our study in Acts in verse 23 of chapter 2 where Paul or Peter, the apostle, got up and he said that Jesus was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God and you have taken him by lawless hands and have crucified him and put him to death. In that one sweeping statement, Peter says, what happened to Jesus on the cross was determined by the purpose and foreknowledge of God. It had to happen just as it happened, and the people that put him on the cross acted with total free will and are personally responsible for what they did. And then we step back and we start scratching our heads. You ever scratch your head when you're thinking? Do people actually do that, the head scratcher thing? Anyway, it's a good picture. So we scratch our heads and we think, okay, how does that work out? And we have a tendency, I mean, we're human beings, we think we can figure everything out. And, and, and so we think, okay, it has to be one way or the other. It can't be two things that I can't understand. 
And so we fall on the side of God's sovereignty and we become more and more fatalistic. Or we fall on the side of man's free will and we become more indeterminate, as they say, where God you know, doesn't exactly know what he's doing half the time. And what I'm telling you about God's providence, the doctrine of providence is that God is sovereignly in control of everything. All things work together for good. And at the same time, in a way that we will never fully comprehend, you and I have free will to act and we are held responsible for our actions. Uh, and, and we're not asked to figure that out. We're told in Scripture to know that. When Paul wrote in Romans 8, 20, he says, he says, knowing this, and then we know it, and then we believe it, and we act accordingly. God is in control, yet men act freely and are held responsible. Providence is one of those biblical doctrines that we believe without figuring it out. God is in control, and you have free will, and all things work together for good to those who love God. Now, I want you to notice the peace experienced by Paul in the midst of the storm. In verse 33, and as day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, today is the 14th day you have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take nourishment, for this is for your survival, since not a hair of, uh, will fall from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and also took food themselves. And in all, we were 276 persons on the ship. So when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. And so you see God in control. They would certainly be saved, yet they still acted prudently by lightening the ship. They threw over the wheat. Providence doesn't ever teach let go and let God. We are always to act obediently, responsibly, and sacrificially. We're to act wisely. We're to use our faculties and, and those kinds of things. And so uh, it, it's this double track that we're on. God's providence means his sovereignty and my responsibility. Now, let's be real. I'm sure some hairs fell out during the wreck. I mean, it just, you know, it's just a... A natural thing. And so Paul, you know, this isn't literal in the sense, but I think Paul is alluding to something Jesus said once. In Luke 12, 7, remember Jesus said, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. And, and I used to think, I, I don't know why, I've always been fascinated with that. You know, uh, and I used to make a lot of bald jokes, that's why, but I don't anymore. If you're bald, God loves you so much. You're, in fact, Maybe God loves you more because your numbered hairs, are, are, they're cataloged in heaven. And, and, and uh, anyway, I don't want to get too deep into that. The very hairs of your head are numbered. That doesn't mean that, you know, I mean, think of all the hairs that have fallen out of your head in your life, brushing your hair, combing your hair. Each of them was numbered. Oh, there goes number 17,005 and stuff and there must be some crazy record keeping system in heaven really all the books that God God keeps a book of the hairs of your head that are numbered it's it's insane but beautiful and so Paul is saying uh, that God really cares for you so much that that he knows all about the hairs of your head if you have any or if you had any or what's going on with that and and you're going to be <laughs> you're going to be okay that's how much God cares for you and so, 
Uh, he says that, and then there's the way that Paul ministered to them. They were not taking communion, but Paul was described almost as if he were like Jesus breaking bread with his disciples. It's as if Jesus were there present in their midst. If you put those two things together, you see the very practical value of knowing God's providence. You have a sense of God's constant presence, and you have an understanding of his personal care and concern for you. Those two things are so powerful. God is present with me right now, always, and he cares for me so much that he's numbered my hairs. Thus, whatever things are happening or might happen, I can know that they are working together for good. God has not abandoned me. He doesn't need to be invoked. I don't need to yell for him and wonder where he is. Everything is working together for good. And whatever is happening, even though it's in my, in my category, it's not so good. God is preciously caring for me in a way that is ultimately better for me. And that, when it is believed, leaves you experiencing God's peace. Providence is real and true and certain. And so really, you may as well experience God's peace in the midst of your storm or storms. You may as well. You don't have to. You can be like me and get all agitated and bummed out and, you know, squirrely about it. But God is still God. He's still in control. And, and, and I, so you might as well step back and say, hey, I, oh, I, you know, what I really need is to experience peace. And not just for myself. You know, this is a great thing to experience, the peace of God. I mean, just to have it for yourself. But it's really, you see, in Paul's case, it wasn't just for himself. It was for 275 other people. Think of this story if Paul was a little bit worried about the shipwreck. Hey, where's the apostle? He's uh, hiding in a grain closet somewhere. He's like, you know, freaked out about this storm. He's like, God, I thought you told me we were going to get there. What are you doing? No, Paul, he, he, he prayed it through. I'm not saying Paul was perfect, you know, but he prayed it through. He figured it out. He said, hey, I might as well be at peace. God told me I was going to get to Rome. So I guess I'm going to get there. It reminds me in the Old Testament of the uh, patriarch Abraham towards the end of his life after he'd worked out a lot of issues of trusting God and believing in God. One day the Lord comes to him and says, hey, Abraham, take your only son, your son that I've given you, the son of your promise, the son in whom all of my promises are going to become real. Take him and sacrifice him on the mountain where I tell you. And Abraham said, let's go, let's get it on, God. And he goes and, and is right up to the point of, of sacrificing Isaac when the Lord stops him. And in the New Testament, we learn, I believe it's in the book of Hebrews, that Abraham thought God will have to raise him from the dead if necessary because he promised me that through Isaac my seed would go on. And I mean, there's, there's a guy that's at peace. You see no fretting in his life. He's not on the way to, what's God gonna do? What's God gonna do? Oh, this is crazy, you know? He doesn't delay. He doesn't get stopped along the way. He just goes for it. He believes God. He has perfect peace about what the Lord is going to do. Back to Paul. Paul, because he had peace, he could minister to those 275 people and say, look, guys, we're in a storm-tossed sea, but God told me we're all gonna be safe. We gotta stay on the boat, 
I just, I assumed that everybody would stick together here. I didn't know you three guys were going to turn out to be idiots and try and escape on your own. So let me clarify, we need to stay on the boat. And uh, yeah, the boat's going to break up and some of you can't swim, uh, you know, so you're going to invent surfing and boogie boarding here, you know, and stuff, but, but uh, we're all going to be okay. And so, hey, how about we break some bread? And I mean, it's, it's like fantastic. You know, one of the things I think sometimes when we, on a second level, when we are experiencing peace in a crisis or in a situation, sometimes we're hesitant to express it to other people because people say, hey, what's wrong with you? You know, get into, I mean, get agitated. This is serious. Get worried about this. Be nervous. And you're like, you know, I, I don't want to come across as being callous. It almost seems callous sometimes to be matter of fact. And, and to say, well, you know, yes, this is a tragedy, but life is full of tragedies. And here's a real tragedy. If this person had died and gone to a Christless eternity, now that would have been a tragedy. But we know that they're in heaven with the Lord. And so let's sorrow, but not those who have no hope. And let's smile, and let's, you know, let's act like Christians who have the peace of God. And, and so it's a very powerful thing in our own lives and then to minister to others. And so you may as well experience God's peace in the midst of your storm or storms. Secondly, in verses 39 through 44, since God's providence is at work, you may as well expect his protection. Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus were confident the storm would not kill them. But they were not out of danger, we see, because the soldiers wanted to kill them. It's like a double barrel here. It's like, okay, we're going to survive the storm. What are those swords? Oh, we have to kill you because you're prisoners in our charge. And we can't afford to have you escape because if we ever make it back to our duty station and they ask us what happened to our prisoners and we say they escaped or we can't account for them, they could kill us. Or certainly it would be the end of our career. We'd kind of retire without any benefits. You know, I mean, it, it, this is going to bode well. And so this is, you can't fault the soldiers for doing their duty. This is what a Roman soldier did. He took his job seriously. You're my prisoner. I'm going to get you to Rome one way or the other. And so if I can't get you there alive, I'm going to make sure that they know you're dead because, uh, you know, I want to I promote and, and get ahead. I want to be a centurion someday. And so this is what was happening. So, I mean, it's, you know, if you're, if you're Paul, it's like you can't win for losing, right? I mean, it's, what's, you're going to survive the storm and then somebody's going to try and kill you. But here we see another aspect of God's providence in his protection. Verse 39, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach onto which they planned to run the ship if possible. And they let go the anchors and left them in the sea. Meanwhile, loosing the rudder ropes, and they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for shore. Striking a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground. The prow stuck fast and remained immovable, but the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves. Again, I would emphasize the fact that the certainty of God's providence did not discourage them from acting with all of their skill and experience. Even after all that Paul had said about God's providence, they still did everything humanly possible, everything they could, everything they knew how to do as experienced travelers and sailors. And so at home, at church, at work, at school, wherever you are, you are to give it your all and give it your best. It's, it should be troublesome to each of us 
when a Christian slacks off in any area. When, when, when you're, and I know sometimes people falsely accuse, this happens all the time, I just heard of a case earlier today, and so I'm not talking about false accusations, but when, when an unbeliever, a non-believer comes up and, and has a real accusation against a Christian because they're slacking off at work, they're not doing their job, they're late, they leave early, they're not doing their work, when, not that they have to be the best A-plus valedictorian student, but that they're, they're not doing their homework, they're not taking their studies seriously. In the church, ooh, I don't wanna step on anybody's feelings, but if, if I'm not taking my service in the church seriously by, by you know, being there and doing what I'm supposed to do, I mean, this is a, it's, it should be a personal embarrassment. And we can't just say, oh, let go and let God, it'll all get done, God is sovereign. Yes, he is, and, and he'll cover for you, but it's not good, it's not right. And so, you know, providence doesn't mean we just goof off all the time. If anything, it encourages us to do more. Charles Spurgeon said this, brethren, my desire is to do everything for the Lord in first-rate style. We are all of us eager to do much for the Lord, but there is a more excellent way. With ringing trowel, we strike away and build a wall, we girdle a city in six months. The aforesaid wall will be down in six days. It would be better to do more by doing less. Thoroughness is infinitely preferable to superficial area. It is well to work for God microscopically. Each tiny bit of our work should bear the closest inspection. And I would say amen to that. Verse 42, and the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. I'm always astonished at people who live near water or on an island and don't know how to swim. When, when we would go to the Philippines, wouldn't you assume that people who live in the Philippines know how to swim? These big tsunamis coming in and dragging you out into the ocean, you know, every few years. I mean, it's amazing. I told you a little bit about this crazy bonka boat trip we took one time in the Philippines. And just about all of the Filipinos who went with us couldn't swim. And I thought, wow, this is crazy. Because, uh, you know, now we're going to have to save them. I was looking to them to save us. You know, I figured, hey, you're the, you're the island-dwelling expert, you know, and stuff, and so just, you know, save me. And they, they were like, we can't swim. And so I thought, well, all right. God had to save us all. So, uh, so a lot of these guys couldn't swim. Now, the centurion acted with mercy rather than duty. While we might think it a no-brainer, as I mentioned, he was putting his own life at risk, or at least his career. But Paul had made such an impression upon him through the storm that it touched his heart. The th uh, theologians sometimes refer to this as incarnational ministry. Jesus was God incarnate, from the word carne, which means flesh, God in human flesh. Jesus died on the cross, he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, he'll return to the earth. In the meantime, we believers are likened to his body on the earth. When we minister to people, it is incarnational in the sense that it is Jesus ministering to them through us as if he were still on the earth. And so the ministry of Paul, the ministry of Jesus through Paul to this centurion 
had touched him in such a way that he had mercy upon Paul and the other prisoners uh, rather than doing his duty. And, And this was a huge, huge decision on his part because he literally was putting his life at risk. He was willing to lay down his own life for the lives of these prisoners because of the presence of Jesus Christ in Paul's life. It's big. Verse 44, and the rest, some on boards and some on parts of the ship, and so it was that they all escaped safely to land. God protected them. Well, yes, they were shipwrecked, and yes, they were in the sea, and some could not swim, and yes, it was treacherous yet getting to shore, but he nevertheless protected them. It's another reason we have a hard time embracing the fullness of God's providence. God's protection can seem so tentative. I mean, you say, okay, Lord, I'm at peace and you're gonna protect me. Why am I tossing about in the ocean when the next gulp of salt water could take me under? I mean, what kind of protection is that? As far as protection is concerned, Lord, I think it's pretty lame. And and a lot of times, you know, we, we think that way. His protection is the best suited to bring him glory. It may not seem that way in our storm or storms, but the Bible is clear, all things work together for good to those who love God. We must always conclude that God protects us as is best suited. Now, step out of your own life for a minute, look at some of the Bible characters. We see this and we rejoice in it in someone like Job or Joseph in the Old Testament. Maybe the first time you read Job, you're a little bit freaked out. You think, wow, first of all, what is the devil doing in heaven? Who invited that guy? It's like, you know, party crasher extraordinaire. And he's in heaven, God's talking, and then God's talking to him. I mean, at least give him the cold shoulder, you know, but he's, you know, they're having a conversation, and then he has the audacity to ask that he could just kind of destroy Job's life. And you're thinking God would never allow that, and God says, okay, just don't kill him. And then you see for about 35 chapters, Job is out sitting on an ash heap, scraping boils that are all over his body. You ever had a boil? One boil? He had boils from the crown of his head to this, and I mean, he's just like scraping. I can't hardly read the book of Job anymore without visualizing the boils. But anyway, uh, but then you get to the end and, 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 and Job says that he has been refined and brought forth as gold. And then and we rejoice and we think, oh, Lord, you're so, look at what you did. You just so smashed the devil. You just so put him in his place. You just so showed how, how just you love and, and how love and all. And you're just blessed. And then, then Joseph comes along, book of jo- Genesis. Joseph, I mean, he's just, he's everybody's, the little brother you don't want to have, you know. Hey, I just had a dream. All of you are going to bow down and worship me. Oh, yeah, right, Joe. And so they cast him in a pit. They're going to kill him. Instead, they sell him into slavery. He ends up in Potiphar's house. Potiphar's wife accuses him of uh, sexual abuse. He gets thrown into an Egyptian prison. They forget about him there until Pharaoh has some crazy dream that he can't interpret. And, yeah, yeah, there's this guy in, in prison who interprets dreams. They bring him out. He interprets the dream. Pharaoh says, who's wiser than you? You're number two in command. Take over. A few years go by, and all of a sudden, here comes Joseph's brothers in need of food. 
And the story ends, you know, where Joseph reveals himself to them and he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And you and I, we read those stories and we think, man, God, you are so good. Except in my life, because right now I'm in the pit, right now I'm in the prison, right now I'm in Pharaoh's household, I'm somewhere where I don't see the end of what you're doing. I'm feeling very Jobian today, Lord. You've blessed me with a disease. You've blessed me with some tragedy or some crisis. And, and, and it's precisely because we can't see the end. And we, we don't fully comprehend God's plan that we have trouble being at peace or saying, you know, hey, I'm in the midst of God's protection. Go to the hospital. Let's say you're in the hospital. Somebody visits you and they say, hey, what happened to you? And you say, I don't know. I'm being protected by God. What are you talking about? I don't know. God says he you know, promised to protect me, and so I guess the best place for me to be would be in a hospital bed dying. And it, it's really a revolutionary way of looking at life, and uh, it's, it's rare, I think. I mean, I, I haven't achieved it all the time, but it's possible because... Uh, this is what the Bible teaches. Providence is no less real in your life as a child of God than it is in the life of Job or Joseph. It's real whether I fully believe it or not. It's real even though I cannot ever totally reconcile God's control with man's free will. It may help you to believe God's providence if you will jettison any idea that you're going to figure out how God can both be in control and you can have free will. I think sometimes that struggle, that intellectual dilemma that you and I think we can figure out keeps us from just knowing. Paul said, we know that all things work together for good. He doesn't say we understand how all things work together for you. He says, we know this. How do we know it? We know it based on everything we know about God from the Bible and how he's been revealed through Jesus Christ. We know this must be true about our personal loving God. Knowing it, I can believe it. Believing it, I can have peace, not just for myself, but to minister to others. And I can expect God's protection in a way that best suits my life until I'm with Jesus in glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these things. They are beyond us and yet right in our grasp. And I pray for myself and those who believe this morning that we would simply do that, that we would believe, knowing that all things work together for good and that all things means everything in the created universe. I pray that we would quit trying to figure out how your sovereignty and our responsibility work together, and that we would trust in both, that we would pursue both, and that we would just walk in peace, protected, until you come for us, either personally, in death, or corporately in the rapture of the church. Thank you for these things, Lord. Encourage and strengthen us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand together. Men, we need you to uh, sign up for the men's day, uh, the one-day men's conference if you're coming. We have to get a count here pretty soon. Uh, I know it's a couple of weeks away, but if you have any intention of coming, sign up so that we can uh, know how much uh, provision we need. 
Uh, we're figuring, what, two, three pounds of meat for every man. Uh, so, uh, well, you know, we eat well. Uh, the parenting class, it, it also is several weeks away, but we'd like you to sign up for that because we have materials that we're purchasing that we're going to give you. Uh, and uh, even if you can't make all of the classes, you'll get the gist of it if you can come to uh, two of them or even one of them. And so if you want to do that, uh, if, you're, if you're a grandparent, there's no reason for you to come because that's a whole different class uh, that involves uh, the opposite of everything I'm going to talk to you at the parenting class. Uh, so we'll have a grandparents class one night. Uh, it'll be an ice cream social uh, at uh, 31 Flavors. So anyway. I got busted out at 31 Flavors. I had to sit at the kid table with CJ. Uh, you know, a bunch of people from the church came in, and I... Yes, there was ice cream all over, all right? So that's just nothing I could do about that. But anyway, so those two things. Sign up for those two things. We're doing the breakfast burritos. They, they're, they're made with love and some really good ingredients. Uh, and there's potatoes uh, along with them on the side for, you know, for those of you who really have an appetite. Uh, and so uh, I know a lot of you get them to go and that's okay, uh, but the intent is for you to just hang out here and stuff yourself so that you can have fellowship with somebody. At least say hi to somebody you've never met before uh, and encourage them in the Lord. May God bless you, may God keep you in Jesus' name, amen. Guys are here to pray with you.